You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. <laughs> One of the biggest issues that I have with preaching is talking too fast. And after singing that song, uh, I can blame it on something else other than myself. One of the most painful experiences that we can have in our lives is when you are betrayed or attacked by someone you love, someone that you consider to be a friend, someone whose life you have poured into, even given your whole heart to in wedding stuff, someone you're married to. That's painful. Miroslav Wolf is a modern-day theologian and thinker who is superb. He wrote a number of books, one of them that I think is his best. It's a slog to get through, but amazing. It's called Exclusion and Embrace. In it, he records the first-person account of a woman who lives in Eastern Europe. She says this, I'm a Muslim. I am 35 years old. To my second son, I gave the name Jihad, so that he would never forget the testament of his mother, revenge. The first time I put my baby to my breast, I told him, may this milk choke you if you forget. The Serbs, they taught me how to hate. And she goes on to describe her work as a teacher of elementary school Serb children, and the day that her, the only son of her neighbor, as a teenager, attacked and brutally humiliated her as bearded hooligans sat around and laughed. She had taught him school. She had imparted wisdom to him. She had given him a part of her soul. And he turned around and cruelly humiliated and attacked her. She was attacked and betrayed. It's hard to imagine what she must have been feeling, isn't it? There is no pain like that of the betrayal of friends and family. Times like this, times of betrayal and attack by those you love can tear your heart apart. It can even destroy your faith. It can drive you to despair, to bail out or to boil over. On the other hand, it might just drive you to your knees, which doesn't necessarily make it any easier. Because if you fall to your knees, how, how do you pray? What do you say? How do you pray when you've been attacked and betrayed? Well, I believe that Psalm 55 shows us how we can pray, gives us a model of prayer when we're attacked and betrayed. And it contains a a three-component model of how we can pray when that happens to us. But before we look at it, it's helpful to understand the context of this psalm before reading it because it lets us know the forms that the attacks on David took that caused him to write it, and perhaps parallels things in our own lives where that has happened. Scholars believe that David wrote, that the events that caused David to write this psalm happened in 2 Samuel chapters 15 and 16. In brief, Absalom, David's second oldest living son, was working very hard to win the hearts of the Jewish people away from his father in order to gain the throne for himself. 
He was trying to steal what was not his from his own father, no less, and it was working. He did it a number of ways. One of the things that he did was to act the part of a king. He, he pretended to be something he was not. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1, it says that he provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners to go before him. The role of the runners was to run ahead of him and to alert everybody that Absalom was approaching so that people would leave their beds and breakfasts and businesses and would run outside to see Absalom, who according to scripture was this magnificent human specimen, riding in a chariot, which at that time was a symbol of military and political power and influence. So he imitated a king. The second thing he did was he intercepted people who were coming to the city to get judgment from the real king, his father David. Verse 2 said that Absalom used to rise early. Of course, you get there before everyone else. And stand beside the way of the gate, probably the gate closest to the palace. And when a man had a lawsuit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would respond, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but no one listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me as judge in the land. Then every man who has any kind of lawsuit would come and I would give him justice. And when the man would come near and prostrate himself, David, or David, Absalom would take a hold of him and kiss him. I don't know about you, but if somebody wanted to be king and kissed me, no way. <laughs> Kissing and king, no way. But it worked in that culture. Because verse 6 concludes the progression by saying, in this manner Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel, presumably from his father, he was admirable, he was amiable, he was available, he was a perfect imposter king. The results of that in chapter 15, verse 13, is that one of David's servants finally came to him, probably in a rush, and said, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David, who suddenly realized what this meant and was afraid, said to his servants who were with him, Arise and let each of us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, lest he overtake and quickly bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So he was, he was saying, he's going to kill us, and he's not only going to kill us, if we don't get out of the city, he's going to lay it waste as well. So he flees in, in fear. And there was a large contingent of men who were against him with mutiny in their hearts. Other bystanders just watched David leave, and as he left, verse 23 says that the country was weeping with a loud voice as all of David's people passed over. The king passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over by the way of the wilderness. David knew that his son would kill him for the crown. And even though people wept as he left, he knew that 
in terms of their ability to fight, the only thing that tears do in battle is make your face wet. They don't help at all. Can you imagine the pain that he would be feeling because his, king, his son was willing to kill him for his crown? The experience of mutiny of the men that you had led into battle for years. But then to have a trusted friend involved would make it even worse. Absalom is rallying people to support him. And verse 12 of chapter 15 says that he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor. Now, I don't know how many counselors or advisors you have in your life. I have a few men I've known for years. I trust them. Most of them are friends. I know that they will shoot straight with me, and I implicitly trust that they will never obey, never betray me. And Ahithophel was that kind of a man to David, a trusted counselor. He was an advisor whom David confided in and received wisdom from. He knew David's struggles. He knew his strengths. He knew what got David out of bed in the morning and the things that would make him wish he was back there a couple of hours later. And Absalom summoned Ahithophel. How would he respond? And he's David's loyal friend. Of course he would tell Absalom to go take a flying leap or worse. Of course, as a wise advisor, he would counsel him to bide his time and wait for the rightful time to become king rather than to kill his own father. But listen to verse 30 of chapter 16. It says, And David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went, and his head was covered and he walked barefoot. Then all of the people who were with him covered their head and went up weeping as well. And someone told David, <clears throat> Ahithophel is among the conspirators. David's loyal friend, his counsel and confidant betrayed him. He was now a part of the mutiny. And here's David, pursued by a son who wants to kill him for his crown. Having men that he had led into battle have turned their backs on him and now being betrayed by even a long-time trusted friend. So how do you pray when that happens, when people attack and betray you in those ways, when a friend or confidant turns their back on you? Psalm 55 is how David prayed. And I think that from it we can learn some things and maybe even be surprised by some things as we look at his prayer. But first, I would invite you to stand as we read it together. It's a bit long, but we'll read it together. <clears throat> Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy because of the pressures of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had, 
that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away and would lodge in the wilderness. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. For I've seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go about upon her walls, and iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is the one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion and familiar friend. We had sweet fellowship together. We walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their midst. As for me, I shall call upon the God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for they are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old, with whom there is no change, who do not fear God. He will put forth his hand against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, and yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken, but you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. And this is the word of God. Please be seated. In this psalm, I think that there are three components of how we can pray when we are attacked or betrayed. But in order to in order to see them, we need to first just think for a minute about how such anguish is commonly expressed. If you've just received word that your son wants you dead, you're not going to go into your room and compose a, a, a limerick, right? If a trusted friend has betrayed you, you don't go, hmm, what a perfect time to compose Japanese haiku poetry. No. If you've ever sat with a man whose son has said that he hates him and wants him dead, a woman whose husband has cheated on her, a homeowner swindled by a tradesman friend, then you know that the emotions just spill out. They are raw and they are strong. There is little linear expression to it at all. The, frozen, the phrases are broken and there's little artful beauty the thoughts go everywhere, sometimes repeatedly. And that's what David's poem does here. It goes all over the place as he scrawls it down. So because of the shotgun nature of this, where there's stuff everywhere, what I have done is I've tried to gather the pellets together in a, into three piles so that we can look at what David is doing as he pours out his heart to God. And from the raw emotions and the strong statements, there are three things that we can do when we pray because we've been attacked or betrayed. The first component of David's prayer is an honest and thorough description of what is going on. He describes his situation to God 
in two ways. The first thing that he tells God is what is going on inside of him. Second part of verse 2, I am restless in my complaint and surely distracted. God, I can't sit still. I cannot think of anything else. Verse 4, my heart is in anguish within me and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. The horror has overwhelmed me. God, not only can I not concentrate, I am terrified that this thing is going to kill me. In fact, I am so afraid that I just want to run away and hide. I just want to get away from the pain. You see that in verses 6 and 8. If I had wings like a dove, man, I would fly away and be at rest. I would wander far away and lodge in the wilderness. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. In other words, I just want to run. He admits what he's feeling. God, I can't concentrate anymore. I am terrified. And given my druthers, I would rather run away and hide than stay here and endure. And David is so honest and transparent before God that he even expresses out loud or on paper his desire for his enemy's harm. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling in their midst. God, I can't concentrate anymore. I would rather run away and hide, and deep down I want them dead. That's quite a prayer, isn't it? It shows you something about prayer, though, that we sometimes ignore, and that in its rawest form, prayer is not polished. It's primal. David prays out his guts, and there's no editing that goes on. And interestingly enough, there's no record at all that God was angry with that prayer or punished him for it. Now, I know when we look at the New Testament, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies and do good to those who persecute us. I don't think that this eliminates our ability to pray what we are feeling, however. What it does show us is that this primal prayer for vengeance is not the right ending place of prayer, but it is an understandable starting place for prayer. So as David describes his situation to God, he tells God what is going on inside of him, and he pours out his emotions. Perhaps we don't like to express how we're feeling to anyone. Just stuff it down inside because maybe you were raised that that's what real men do. And I scream to differ. Moses cried out to God and told him how he was feeling. Joshua cried out to God and told him how he was feeling. Elijah cried out to God and told... Jesus cried out to his father and told him how he was feeling. Out of some sort of misguided stoicism, you can stuff it down but there are so many biblical examples that tell us that it is okay, maybe even personally helpful, to tell God what you're feeling. When you're attacked and betrayed, David shows us that we need to understand what we are feeling and we have the freedom to tell him about it. Second, he not only describes what he was feeling, he, he describes what his enemies were doing. He speaks of a, 
a general plural enemy, uses the word they. I'll start reading in verse 1, but verse 3 is the key. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I am surely distracted. And here's why, verse 3, because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. David is not specific. He just says there's a general group of people who are talking against me, who are creating problems against me, who are bearing hateful grudges against me. David describes to God what men in general are doing against him, and then he talks about one individual in particular. Because you see a shift there from they, 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 to he, he, he. One person. And interestingly enough, the person that he's referring to with he is not Absalom, who started the whole thing. The he is actually Ahithophel who betrayed him. He starts to talk about him in verse 12. For it's not an enemy who reproaches me, because then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, because then I could hide from him. He's alluding to Ahithophel, and then he does something really interesting in verse 13 as he nails it down. He describes the situation to God by talking to Ahithophel as if he were there, even though he is not. Okay? It would be like um, you asking your, your spouse or your friend to pick up some milk on the way home. And you phone them, and they're almost home, and they say, Oh, I got too busy and I forgot. And you hang up the phone, but you say to your friend who is no longer on the phone, you say this out loud, of course you forgot the milk because it's for me and not for you. If we were talking Cheetos or Doritos for you, then you would have remembered. You don't care that I'm busy. You only care that you're busy. That's all that matters. Having been in the room where someone has done that, <laughs> you wonder why are you talking to a person who isn't even here when I'm right here? That's what David is doing here. He is, so, he is so overcome with hurt that he stops talking to God who is there and he starts to talk to Ahithophel who, who knows where he was. David says again in verse 13 as he talks to Ahithophel who's not there, it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar or close friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walking in the house of God in the throng. We went to church together. We traveled there together. We, we, our kids ran around the sanctuary together. We volunteered for the same ministries together. We played fantasy football together. Cross-border shopping trips twice a year when the dollar was better. We hunted together. I watched your back, and you watched mine. David became so emotionally involved in the hurt that he starts to talk to a man who isn't even there and ignores the God who is. That's how deep that hurt was. Describe what's going on to God. Well, sometimes we hesitate to tell God what's happening because he already knows. We don't really want to bore him with redundant details. 
But I wonder where some of us may have gotten the idea that the idea of prayer is to bring new information to God, as if there is any. Instead, part of the reason and purpose for sharing the information is to get it out of us and before Him. To stop it from, you know what it does, from spinning around and around like a vortex. And into that vortex is sucked all of our emotion and our productive time and our interpersonal energy into this black hole. Getting it out before him can stop that. Perhaps it's even to re-experience the betrayal, but this time intentionally in the presence of God. He is not informed by it. We might be reformed by it. So the first part of how you pray when people are out to get you is this. Describe the situation to God. Get the situation and the emotions on the table before him. Perhaps even repeatedly the way David did. Now there's a second component to David's prayer when he was attacked and betrayed. In my my elementary school, you were expected to fight if you were a boy. It was a part of the culture. The Colonel Saunders Elementary School version of ancient Sparta. And we had it down to a well-nuanced event, an art form. As early as grade one, you learned that fighting, I mean, the outcome, it was not just a matter of winning or losing. Oh, no, there were all kinds of descriptions of it. For example, to absolutely lose a fight was to get kicked. On the other hand, to win a fight and sustain no marks was a not-a-scratch victory. I had my fair share of those. No, I, I just remember one. Uh, grade three. David was his given name. I called him David the Weenie. Because <laughs> he, he bugged me all the time, and this day he really bugged me. And we exchanged words to each other, descriptions of each other's mothers. And <laughs> that, of course, led to the setting of the time and place of the battle. Recess, behind the school, beside the sand pit. It was always the place, but you had to go through the ritual of declaring it, because that was a part of it. I'd like to think that it was my amazing skill set. <clears throat> I don't know what it was. I managed to trip him over backwards and jump on his chest, and I fed him punches until he was squealing like a scared rabbit. Definitely a not, a, not a scratch victory, which I thoroughly enjoyed until after school. You see, David the Weenie had a brother in grade six. <laughs> we can just call him Tyrone the Meanie. <laughs> and after school, Tyrone totally enjoyed a not-a-scratch victory, and I got totally kicked. You know, this does have a point. <laughs> what David the Weenie did with his big brother Tyrone, the meanie, is what David the king did with God. David not only described his situation to God, he tried to rally God as the strongest, biggest guy that he could get a hold of to fight for 
and avenge him. He starts it in verse 9, confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. David's prayer is that God would confound his enemies, that he would divide them rather than unite them. And it has an, this, this line actually has an interesting uh, similarity to the prayer that David directed to Ithophel when he prayed against him in verse 31 of 2 Samuel. O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. Go after him, Lord. Confound their purposes by confusing his wisdom. Look at verse 15 of this psalm. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling in their midst. God, make their life a living hell. Kill them even, but let, it, let their death be like they are alive so that they will suffer through the entire descent into the dark place of death and shadows. Avenge me, O oh God. It's not, the, it's not the final place of prayer, but it's a starting place sometimes. So the first way we pray when, those who are, when we are attacked and betrayed is to describe our situation to God. The second way is to request that God fight for you, knowing that he is just, and he will sovereignly respond however he wants, but you leave it with him to do that. And then there's a third part of this prayer. Much of the prayer is present tense. This is what I'm feeling now. This is what is happening to me right now. But in the conclusion of the psalm, David changes from his present hell to future hope. Look at the future tenses of the verb beginning in verse 16. As for me, I will call on the Lord, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and noon, I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in, the peace, in peace from the battle which is against me. Then down to verse 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken, but thou, O God, will bring them, my enemies, down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and destruction will not live out half of their days, but I will trust in you. And the third part of his prayer is to affirm your trust in God to deliver you. Affirm your trust in God to deliver you. You know, I, I can give you all kinds of biblical models of how to pray when you're attacked and betrayed, but unless you believe in David's God, you will not do so with hope. David said, I'm going to cry and plead all night long because I have a God who hears me. I'm going to call out to a God who redeems because he will save me. I'm going to call on a God who cares because I know that he will rescue me. I'm going to call on a God who is just because I know that bad men will get what is coming to them. Affirm your trust in God to deliver you. Put it together. How do we pray when we're attacked and betrayed? We describe what is going on to God because he cares. We ask him, we solicit his help to defend us because he's just. And we affirm our hope in him to deliver because he saves. 
We describe what's going on because he cares. We solicit his help because he saves or he is just, and we affirm our hope in him to deliver because he saves. This is a good time to come to the communion table today. If you don't have elements, by the way, you can raise your hand and the ushers will give them to you. As we do so, we remember Jesus our Savior, and we do so remembering one who was betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, and abandoned by the rest of his friends. Then he was unjustly attacked by the Jewish religious establishment and the Roman legal and military establishment who beat him and mocked him and nailed him to a cross. Had he come down from that cross, we would have no hope of forgiveness and relationship to God and would die in our sins. But because he gave his life, we have a Savior to whom we can turn for full and free forgiveness. And with our psalm today, a Savior to whom we can turn when we are attacked and betrayed because he was and he knows exactly what we're feeling and can intercede on our behalf to the Father with full empathy and compassion. I'm gonna pray for the bread and the cup together and then we will take them one at a time. Jesus, we praise you today for your broken body and shed blood. Willingness for the forgiveness of our sins. As those who have been attacked and betrayed and want to fight back, we want you to know how eternally grateful we are that you did not call 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set you free, but you died alone for all of us. We are overwhelmed by your forgiveness and so grateful that you can hear us and represent us to the Father when we reach out to you in our brokenness. Amen. The body of Christ who died that your sins might be forgiven and who stands ready to empathetically intercede to the Father for you when you are attacked and betrayed. The blood of Jesus who died that your sins might be totally forgiven and who stands ready to empathetically intercede for you if you were attacked and betrayed. I'd like to invite the worship team to come and lead us, please. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.